Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me, and behold, you therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. Selah. That evening they return. They growl like a dog and go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. For they say, who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you. O you, his strength, for God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride and for the cursing and lying which they speak. Consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be. And let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah. And that evening they return. They growl like a dog and go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense, my God of mercy. As we come to Psalm 59, the heading there gives us a little clue as to what's going on. It says, Psalm 59, to the chief musicians... Set to, do not destroy, a miktam of David, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. We find this, this, the circumstances of the psalm in 1 Samuel 19, specifically verse 11 to 18. And as is mentioned here in that scenario there in 1 Samuel, what has happened is Saul has sent men to watch David in his house, in fact to kill him once he goes to sleep. But David's wife, in fact Saul's daughter, warns David and helps him to escape. That's the circumstance of this psalm. David is trapped, he's in his house, and and Saul's men are surrounding it, and they are watching, and they are waiting in order to kill him. As you work your way through this psalm, it's a psalm that is shockingly blunt. David says some shocking things in here. In verse 5 he says, Do not let... Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressor. That's something that shocks. That's that's a bold statement. Don't be merciful. Later on, he says, consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be. And at the same time, this shockingly blunt psalm 
is also surprisingly optimistic, considering the circumstances in which it is, in which David finds himself. He, he, he is trusting in God all throughout this psalm. In fact, what we find here is the circumstances. His personal experience has been put into a song to invite all with similar situations and similar hope to join in. I think we often tend to remember that the Psalms are songs. They were meant to be sung. A lot of them were sung. These are circumstances which are put into a song meant to be sung by the congregation, by those with similar circumstances and find themselves in a similar place. Spurgeon notes this, that affliction is the tuner of the harps of the sanctified songsters. How many of these psalms would we not have if God had not taken David through these difficult situations? God knew exactly what he was doing. So we find ourselves again in Psalm 59, in impossible circumstances, with a great God. As you work your way through this psalm, it's really split into... um, you could split it several ways. Um, some split it into two sections, verses 1 to 10, uh, and then verses 11 to 17, and in both of those sections, two other sections. Um, so almost like two verses with two... Are a stanza and a verse the same thing? I don't know. Choruses, maybe? I don't, two, two, two verses together, and then two verses together. And these two verses have the same point, and these two verses have the same point, if that makes any sense. Um, as I was studying, I, what kind of stands out to me, it seems as if uh, you'll notice that verses 6 and 7 line up with verses 14 and 15. They're almost identical. Uh, in fact, verses 6 and 14 are. Verses 15 and 7 are, are a little bit different. And it almost seems to me, as, as we come to the psalm, what is happening is, In verses 1 to 5, David finds himself in prayer. He's crying out to God, and he looks out the window. And that's the situation of 6 and 7. This is what it is. So then he goes back to the Lord, and he's praying, and he's crying out, and he looks out the window again. Has God answered? In verses 14 to 15, this is the reality. This is what's going on. And so then he goes back to prayer in verses 16 to 17. But as you start out in verses 1 to 5, 1 through 5, We see David's cry for deliverance, his prayer for help. In fact, you'll notice in there, he starts out uh, in verses 1 to 2. It says, deliver me, defend me, deliver me, save me, down in verse 4, help me. He's in in, in a situation in which he needs help. He needs deliverance. God, deliver me. In this situation, David turns to his God. Deliver me from my enemies. Oh, my God. It is personal. My God. Who cares about me, who knows me, who loves me, who hears me. Deliver me, my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity. Save me from bloodthirsty men. The repetition builds the um, immediacy of this need. They're all around me. Deliver me, God. Defend me. Deliver me. Save me. 
They're out for blood. They are workers of iniquity. They're rising up against me. They are my enemies. For look, they lie and wait for my life. The mighty gather against me. And what makes it worse, as we see at the end of verse 3 and verse 4, is that David is innocent. Not for my transgressions, nor for my sin, O Lord. They want, run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. It's one thing if you know you're guilty. You, David would still cry out to God for mercy. But here he is innocent. These enemies are coming against him for nothing other than, for no other reason than the fact that God has set him apart to rule. So Saul sent them to kill him. I have done nothing. It is not justice that these men are after. Their motives are purely wicked, purely evil. And yet despite all these circumstances, David turns to his God. Deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. Again, Spurgeon notes here that Saul, who had sent these enemies, Saul had more cause to fear than David had. For the invincible weapon of prayer was being used against him. That's a powerful thought. But prayer is powerful. Prayer works. God hears. God sees. And those enemies who were outside David's door, they were real. Their swords were sharp. This situation in which David found himself, it was real and, his, and it was dire. And yet his God is just as real and his prayer is even more powerful than they are. And so Saul really did have more cause to fear because David is on the Lord's side. And David knows that. And we see that in, even in the end of verse 4 and verse 5 with David's bold prayer. David doesn't hold back. He says, awake to help me and behold. Awake. Verse 5, you therefore, O Lord God of hosts, God of the angel armies, God of power, who is so much greater than these enemies who stand against me, the God of Israel. Awake to punish all the nations. Awake. David knows that the Lord is on his side. He knows that he serves a powerful God. And one of the things you see here in verses 4 and 5 is that a, a clear conscience, right? We saw that in verse 3 into verse 4. David's conscience is clear. There is nothing standing between him and God. He has not done anything wrong here. He does not deserve this. And a clear conscience and a convinced faith make for a powerful, bold prayer. He knows he's innocent and he knows his God is able. And so he brings his request boldly to his God. Awake, God! In fact, what you see in verse 4 and 5 is not David. In verse 4, David's focused on his situation. It's, it's personal. 
Awake to help me. And behold, come to my deliverance. But then verse 5 takes, backs up and takes a more universal. It's almost as if David is, is, is praying to his God and he's, he's thinking, God, you're great. You can save me. In fact, God, you are so great. You can save all of the righteous. And that's what you see in verse 5. Lord God of hosts, powerful God, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressor. Transgressors. David, as he meditates on his God, as he cries out to his God, he realizes God's not just big enough to save me. God can save everyone. Save all of the righteous. Awake to punish all the nations. It's almost like as we bring our requests to God, and we recognize the craziness in our world, and we cry out to God, even so, come Lord Jesus. In that moment, our prayer moves from, save me from this situation in which I find myself, to do something great, do something cosmic, do something universal. Come and deliver all of us. That's what happens here with David, because he knows his God is able to do that. Save me, in fact, save all of us. And so David's shocking prayer there in verse 5, do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. David's looking beyond his immediate circumstances here. He's not saying, God, you know, he's not praying this for, for vengeance, but for justice. Don't let any sin go unpunished. Don't let any wicked man escape your judgment, your justice. It's not a concern for deliverance here in verse 5. It's moved beyond a concern for deliverance from verse 4 to verse 5. In verse 5, it's a concern for God's glory. Deliver me. Deliver all of us. Be glorified, God. And then in verse 6, we see that kind of refrain. At evening, they return. They growl like a dog and go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? In verse 6, the picture is of a, um, stray animals, stray dogs that roam around aimlessly, stirring up trouble. And the day when it's hot, they might find a place to sit and to be lazy. But when darkness comes, when it's cool, they get out. That's when they go and they cause trouble. That's what these evil people are like as evening comes. They growl like a dog. They go around the city. They are aimlessly stirring up trouble. Verse 7, indeed, they belch with their mouths. Their, their language is foul. What comes out of their mouth is foul. It is like swords in their lips. Harmful. Powerful. And why do they do this? Because look what it says at the end of verse 7. For they say... Who hears? Who hears? We can do what we want. No one can tell us what to do. It's the king that sent us. And there's no God. We can do what we want. It's because they do not fear the Lord. As Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They are acting foolish because they don't fear the Lord. And in fact, it is their foolishness 
It then turns David's attention to verse 8, causes him to write verse 8. It's almost as if he, he looks up in the midst of his prayer, crying, Oh, come, Lord, do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. He takes a break, he looks out the window, they're still out there. They're still doing their evil. They're still roaming around. They're still spewing their foul language. They still don't care. And he turns his attention back to his prayer. But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. He's not laughing because they're funny. He's laughing because he is not threatened by them in the least. You shall have all the nations in derision. The Lord will laugh at them. He will mock them. How foolish they are to be puffed up in pride and yet so powerless. It's an empty pride. There's nothing behind it. You think you're so great. You have no idea. They find hope in their numbers. They find hope in their strength. They find hope in their armor and in their weapons. David finds hope in his God. I love the perspective of verse 8. You, O Lord, shall laugh at them. How can David say that in this instance? How can he laugh? They are real men with real swords, with real intentions and real orders. But he has a God with real promises, with real power. It's the same perspective as we saw Sunday night with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they stand before a king, as they might even be able to feel the, the heat of a fiery furnace. And yet they don't bow. Because God is laughing at the foolishness of that king. Who do you think you are? You are so weak. May God give us that perspective, an eternal perspective, to see our problems against the backdrop of all that our God is, of how great he is and of who he is. In fact, it's because of that Verse 9, therefore I will wait for you. I will wait for you. We hate that word wait, do we not? We hate waiting. My kids hate waiting. Say, hold on. They don't like that. We hate to wait. But David waits with confidence because David knows who his God is. Therefore, he waits. Therefore, I will wait. So you his strength, sustainer. For God is my defense. My God of mercy, loving kindness, loyal, covenantal love, faithful love. My God is my strength. My God is my defense. My God is my faithful love. He faithfully loves me. And he shall come to meet me. God shall not let me, God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Again, Spurgeon says here, see God and you need not fear to see your enemies. See God and you need not fear to see your enemies. David is surprisingly optimistic in verses 8, 9, and 10. 
He's surprisingly optimistic because David's hope is in his God. In fact, to those of us who know this God, it shouldn't be surprising to us, should it? We know this same God. We know how great he is, how powerful he is. We have his word. We've seen him do great things. And yet, how often do we have David's perspective in verses 8, 9, and 10? It's not easy. But we must take what we know about God and apply it to our circumstances. We must let what we know about God inform how we see what's going on around us. That's exactly what David is doing here. In verse 11 then, David continues on. It's almost as if his confidence is growing and now he's talking to God about how to defeat the enemy. Not will you, I know you will. So verse 11, do not slay them, let my people, lest my people forget, scatter them by your power. Don't, don't wipe them out right away. Instead of wiping them out, send them out powerless and defeated as testaments to your power and your justice. Let them go out powerless, defeated, so that all will see them and say, look what God did to them. Verse 11, do not slay them lest my people forget. How, how can David pray that? Do not slay them lest my people forget. It's almost as if David is uh, thinking of the idea that, that opposition keeps the righteous sharp. Don't, don't just take away all opposition. Keep them around so that we can know that our God is great, so that we can look at them in their defeatedness, in their powerlessness, and see our God did that. Let them be a picture to us of what our God could do. Bring them down, O Lord, our shield. 12, for 12 points out their sin, for the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, to even be taken in their pride and for the cursing and lying which they speak. Unlike David, who in verse 3 and 4 is innocent, is not at fault, they are not innocent. They deserve this. And interesting, it's almost like David changes his mind in verse 13. It's almost like David's wrestling through this in his mind as he's praying through this. How many times do we, you know, as you sit there and you pray, how many times does your mind even change during your prayer as you think through things? That's almost like what happens here. David, don't, don't, don't kill them all. Don't slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power. Bring them down. And it's almost as in verse 13, he changes his mind. Actually, consume them in wrath. Consume them that they be no more. He seems to change his mind, but he doesn't change his ultimate goal. As we see at the end of the verse, and let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth, Selah, that all the world will know the power of Israel's God. It's almost as if he just kind of is, either way, I'm good. As long as all the world knows that our God is powerful. As long as your glory goes forth. I don't care if you just defeat them and send them away. Or if you wipe them all out. Either way, I'm good. Just that your power. That your glory. 
may go forth to the ends of the earth. It's almost as if, verse 14, now David pauses and pulls the shades to look out again. Are they gone yet? Has God done this yet? And that evening they return. They growl like a dog and go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. He looks up and he still sees them wandering. David is still waiting. If you're reading this psalm for the first time, you almost don't expect that. You expect, okay, David's prayed, he's surrendered to the Lord, he's confessed that God is great and God's going to do this. He looks out the window, you expect, they're gone, they're defeated. They've been consumed, praise the Lord. But David is still waiting. In fact, as you get to the end of the psalm, even then, David is still waiting. But even as he is still waiting, he does not lose hope. As we see in verse 16, but evening they return, they growl like a dog, they go around the city, but I will sing of your power. David's praise is not conditioned on the deliverance for which he he waits. He will praise God because God is worthy of praise, regardless of deliverance. They're still out there. They're still roaming around. They're still growling. They're still spewing forth this filth. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud for all to hear of your mercy in the morning. He's not shy about his hope, even in the midst of his trial. I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. Note that, right? Verse 14 and verse 6. When is it that these evil people come out? It's at evening. It's as if David is saying, I know that morning is coming. Morning is coming, and I will sing to my God. I will sing aloud of his new mercies, of his mercies that are new every morning. It might be night now. It might be evening. They might be roaming around. But morning is coming. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. You have been. Oh God, my help in ages past, even as we just sang. You have been my defense. You have been my refuge in the day of trouble. Therefore I will sing. Verse 17, to you, O my strength. I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. As we come to the end of verse 17, David is still waiting for deliverance, but he doesn't let that halt his praise. He knows that his God will deliver him. And we see as we come to the end of this is the reality. Don't let your circumstances silence your praise. Rather, let your praise interpret your circumstances. Don't let your circumstances silence your praise. David's circumstances from the beginning of this psalm to the end of this psalm do not change. 
And yet the whole way through, he's praising God. He lets God know the situation. He's honest with God. He's very blunt all throughout this psalm. But that doesn't stop him from praising his God. This is what I know about you. You are my defender. You are my, my strength. You are the God of my mercy. You are a great God. You are a just God. You will punish wickedness. You will not let this go. So I will praise you. I will sing aloud of your mercy because morning is coming. So by way of application, number one, wait on the Lord. It's hard to do. We hate that word. But wait on the Lord. He sees you. He hears you. He knows your circumstances. He knows your situation. He knew exactly where David was, what he was going through. Just because David didn't see an answer to his prayer when he wanted to did not mean that God was not at work. So wait on the Lord. However long it takes. Wait on the Lord. And as you wait, don't lose hope. So wait on the Lord. But secondly, sing of your deliverer. I don't even just mean literally sing, like as we sing here at church. Do that, yes. But sing as in proclaim the truth of your deliverer. Proclaim it to yourself. Let the word of God proclaim it to you. Proclaim it as you gather as the church and you sing these truths. Literally, sing of your deliverer as you wait. Tell of his greatness. Proclaim his faithfulness and his love. You don't have to wait till God has delivered you to praise him. You can praise him in the midst of any circumstances. You can praise him at all time because your circumstances should not determine your praise. God is worthy of praise regardless of what you're going through. Because he's in control. Because he does not change. Because he knows and he sees and he is working for his glory and for your good. So wait on the Lord and sing of your deliverer. In good times and in bad. Don't let your circumstances silence your praise. Wait on the Lord.